You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. I'm glad to welcome Michael Joyner, MD. Um, he's associated with the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. He also has his own lab, the laboratory of Michael J. Joyner. And he's interested in how humans respond to various forms of physical and mental stress during activities such as exercise, hypoxia, standing up, and uh, under, you know, when, when undergoing blood loss. Dr. Joyner and his team, they study how the nervous system regulates blood pressure, heart rate, and metabolism in response to these kinds of stresses. They're also interested in how blood flow to muscle and skin responds to these stressors. And they study these responses in young healthy subjects, healthy older subjects, and people with conditions such as heart failure. And also Dr. Joyner is personally interested in the role of integrative approaches in science as a powerful tool to integrate and critique data from reductionist approaches, which is pretty common in medicine. We had a great conversation. Uh, Dr. Joyner is super curious and uh, the conversation ranged over many subjects. Some of the areas we talked about was blood flow during exercise. And he mentioned how blood flow to exercising skeletal muscle can increase 50 to 100 times above resting values, which is amazing. Uh, we talked about blood pressure regulation. We basically said, you know, blood pressure is regulated by complex interactions among the nervous system, the heart and blood vessels. And uh, Dr. Joyner's group is looking at how is this affected by the sex of the person and their age We'll get some interesting tidbits there. We talk about blood glucose regulation. You know, as you may know, uh, glucose levels in the blood are tightly regulated to guard against hypo or hyperglycemia. And they're studying the novel idea that sensors in the body that respond to hypoxia also have a role in controlling blood glucose. It talks about breathing and heart failure. In heart failure, breathing during exercise can be excessive. And they have data that suggests that signals from exercising muscle are driving ventilation in heart failure. Uh, he, he looks at the physiologies of, of elite athletes and the limits of human physiology. There's many, many subjects we talked about in this podcast. I think you'll really enjoy it. You'll hear the excitement and the curiosity from Michael, and I try to keep up with him and ask him all I can, but uh, there's quite a bit to ask, so listen in. I think the most the interesting things really are, are, you know, what is integrative physiology? How humans respond to these sorts of complex um, uh, challenges and the limits of reductionistic perspectives in explaining them. So oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. A, whole, a, a, a holistic or integrated perspective to really try to understand some of these things. Yep. Just as you do, you know, the problems you're talking about. I mean, it, well, I can, I can give you, um, yeah, I can give you like a very quick analogy. So, you know, when I had my, uh, thyroid cancer and I had my thyroid taken out, you know, the the surgeon's like, all right, they take it out. And she goes, oh, you may have some shoulder weakness. And, uh, you know, here you go. Have a nice life. Bye. So, right. you know, I, I had to 
you know, first of all, there was scar tissue there because I had a, a, a radical neck dissection. So I started getting acupuncture. I had to do a lot of physical therapy for six months to restore motion in my shoulder. And, you know, luckily none of the nerves were cut. And then I started thinking about it. I said, wait a minute, you know what? Uh, some of the vessels were tied up. So now the blood flow is going to change because, you know, there's not the same amount of space that the blood's going to go through in that area. They took out lymph nodes. So there's so many physiological changes and they just go, Oh, here you go. Have a nice, you know, goodbye. Have a nice day. And, and, and the good news about blood flow is, is because of collateral circulation and our ability, even in adulthood, to grow new blood vessels, a lot of times, you know, surgeons can, it can um, be, I wouldn't call it cavalier, but certainly um, have some confidence that, that blood flow will restore itself. One of the things we did when I was a medical student is, do you know what the subclavian artery is, Richard? Well, I know approximately where it is, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a big artery that goes under your arm and then leads to your brachial artery and then the, the artery to your forearm and hand. Well, in the early days of congenital heart surgery, uh, there was a procedure called the blaylock Towsing shunt where they used uh, the subclavian artery, they tied it off and used the proximal portion, the portion nearest the aorta to help repair these uh hearts, or at least temporarily repair the hearts of babies that had, you know, various uh, congenital heart defects. Huh. So you had these kids who survived into adulthood with pulseless left arms. Right. And what's really interesting about it is, sure, they might have had slightly smaller left arms, and they might have had this or they might have had that, but we actually studied about five or six of these kids back in the 1980s, and what was remarkable is how normal their pulseless limbs were. And we actually measured the blood flow responses to hand grip exercise in those limbs, and they were, were, were you know, they were 70, 80, 90% of normal. So it wasn't hmm. like they were 10% of normal. They, they, right. The kids had recovered, and via the process of collateral circulation, uh, things had improved. Do you think that was because of, was there any angiogenesis of, of more vessels to replace? Angiogenesis. And, you know, one of the other interesting things about this is, that is known is people who are having chest pain, Mm. Uh, you know, for a few weeks or a few months prior to having a heart attack, have smaller heart attacks for a couple of reasons. One is is that they've kind of gotten their some of their heart muscle to uh, get used to lower levels of oxygen for a while through something called ischemic preconditioning. Mm. The other thing that's happened, Richard, is they probably have grown some additional blood flow blood vessels uh, to the parts of their heart that weren't getting enough blood flow to begin with. So this is a pretty common sort of thing. The general principle. Well, what's the what's the general consensus that angiogenesis can't happen or that it does happen? Yeah, what is the, the general consensus is that in most tissues it can happen. Uh, certainly, you know, it's better if you're young and your blood vessels are reasonably healthy. It's been difficult to have it happen in, in people with horrible vascular disease, you know, because they smoke and have super high cholesterol and so forth. Right. But in general, there's pretty good evidence that it can occur. And that there can be significant vascular remodeling in, in response to these sorts of challenges. And this ranges from all the way the discovery or, or the observation that athletes have a lot more blood vessels in their, you know, like cyclists and runners have a lot more blood vessels in capillaries and bigger blood vessels in their, in their legs to the idea that in certain disease conditions or in response to an injury, uh, you, you can grow new blood vessels or expand the, the current ones. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. Are there general recommendations besides a drug, you know, for people to uh, to induce angiogenesis, certain kinds of exercise, exercise at all? 
At one point, they, uh, there were efforts to give people um, gene therapy or other drugs that were targeted toward vascular endothelial growth factors. But as it turns out, uh, really the best thing is, is just graded exercise and, and just coming up with a program that, that slowly, slowly um, stimulates uh, those those blood vessels to grow. Yeah, because that's that VEGF is... Um can possibly cause cancer to happen. You know, that cancer uses VEGF no, to... Uh... Not, not, not at all. Oh, no? So okay. one of the ideas about VEGF, there's a whole collection of drugs called VEGF inhibitors hmm. that under certain circumstances can limit um, the... You know, if you have a tumor, you got to get an increased blood supply to the tumor. And the idea is if you stop this blood supply from growing or, or inhibit it from growing, you'll do damage or, or, or limit the tumor growth. Hmm. Now, that's certainly been shown in a number of animal models and there are some cancers where that's true, but it hasn't been the sort of panacea people thought. But what's really interesting, and this is a good example of technology repurposing in medicine, is that um, um, VEGF inhibitors have been very, very helpful in certain forms of, of uh, macular degeneration in the eye, which are associated with growth of new capillaries in the eye. So a lot of people, you know, in their 60s and 70s go to the ophthalmologist and get these injections of VEGF inhibitors, and it's been miraculous. Vision saving. So macular, uh, so ma- macular degeneration actually they found is caused by the growth of too many new capillaries or vessels. I can't say it's caused by VEGF. What you can say is it's associated with what's called neovascularization of of, uh, of of parts of the eye, and you can limit that neovascularization with these drugs. But more importantly, um, Richard, this is an example of. Um, uh, drug and technology repurposing. You know, Viagra was going to be a drug for chest pain. A number of the um, uh, drugs for HIV have been repurposed, and and so on and so forth. So there's a long history of drugs being repurposed uh, from from one thing to the next. And VEGF inhibitors and, and Viagra are certainly two of the most notable recent examples. Hmm. Okay. Well, sorry to, to run all over the place, but, uh, you know, with the topic, but... I'm happy to get run all over the place. I have a broad interest in all sorts of things. Well, can we can we go back to um, to surgery for a moment? When people have yeah, sure. surgery, you know, like I did and countless other people do, um, what happens in the body and what compensatory mechanisms go on and, you know, what... Uh, I mean, have you studied anything in that regard and what kind of insights do you have? Right. So, so, you know, you have to be really careful when you just lump surgery together. You know, there's minor surgery, major surgery, so on and so forth. And, and I'm an anesthesiologist by, by trade, by, or by my clinical trade. So I think the first thing people have to recognize is, is a couple of things. One is that, that um, when we put people to sleep, hmm. we turn off many of the regulatory or homeostatic mechanisms that control your temperature, control your blood pressure control your breathing, and so forth. And one of the things your currently anesthesiologist does uh, is become really your brainstem and is responsible for regulating those key body functions. Mm. So that's the first thing. So we have tremendous abilities now to do that because our monitoring is improved, we have better drugs, and uh, so forth. So, so that's really improved. And the safety of anesthesia has gone from, you know, maybe death, deaths from anesthesia after World War II being maybe one in 500 or one in 1,000 surgeries to several orders of magnitude better than that. So it's extremely safe to have surgery. 
then it becomes a question of what kind of surgery are you going to have? You know, there, there are liver transplants and there are what we would call dyslectomies. And, and what you had would be somewhere in, in between. Mm. But I think the other thing people have to know is we used to do a whole lot of what's called exploratory surgery because we didn't know what the patient had. So we put the people to sleep. The surgeons would go in and look around see if there was a tumor. That has pretty much ended because medical imaging has improved so much. The other thing that's happened is that that the um, that because people can now see the blood supply to the tumors, there are way fewer cases of unexpected massive bleeding during surgery. Again, in the old days, in the old days is 1980 or, or 1990s. Yeah. Sometimes a tumor would be connected to a major blood vessel. And the surgeons would be kind of flying blind. They wouldn't exactly know how it was connected. Now that's very rare. The surgeons can see where the blood supply is uh, uh, coming from, and either preoperative or interoperative steps can be taken to um, to uh, control the blood supply. So I think what's really changed for me since I started all this in the middle 1980s was, uh, or is, just the safety of anesthesia and surgery. And the fact that there are just way fewer surprises as a result of uh, improved medical imaging. That's good. Okay. So what's um, uh, that's interesting. I didn't know that much about anesthesia and how it turns off all these functions. What happens when someone when when anesthesia wears off? You know, for instance, you know, I've experienced that it takes a while to be able to pee. It takes a while. Yeah. It, 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 and, what's, and, and these, depending on what's going on, it just takes a while for these functions to return to normal. Yeah, why is that? What, what's happening? Yeah, what's happening to cause that? Well, you know, we've given we've given people drugs which which really you know reduce neurologic function. So, and in some ways, these drugs have have um, some commonalities with things like alcohol. And so, some are receptor specific, some are more general, like alcohol. And they just generally suppress the, the all elements of the nervous system. It just takes a while for the nervous system to come back. Uh, so you've got to kind of come, come out of the fog of the anesthesia. And then the other thing is you've had an injury. It's intentional, but you've mm. got to be able to get up, move around, and do those sorts of things. So what is twofold. One is, one is the drug itself. Two is the inactivity and the injury. So the current standard of care when people come out of surgery and they, you know, they're recovering, et cetera, is you know, maybe describe that. And then does this suggest to you, and the reason why I ask is you're a curious person, so I'm going to assume that you thought of something better than what the standard of care is. I'm just going to assume that. So what is the standard when someone comes out of surgery? What, what is the protocol, and what have you thought of that you think would be better than that? The protocol depends on the type of surgery. But one of the things that's really, really changed is uh, we're using shorter-acting drugs that wear off faster, Mm-hmm. And there are a whole bunch of what's called fast-track protocols. So the drugs wear off faster, and then people are up in chairs or even up walking around much faster than they used to be. So, you know, people used to have bed rest for days or even weeks after surgery. And now in, in, for most operations, you know, they try to get you up the same day or the next day. Yeah. And that's really important because what's been shown is that bed rest is, is in and of itself independent of the anesthesia, independent of the surgery itself, bed rest is a risky thing for a whole variety of reasons. And and some of that actually uh, comes from the space program. Uh, what they found in the 1960s when people started going into space is that just a few days of weightlessness in these very vigorous fighter pilots who are astronauts and, and Soviet cosmonauts 
they found that just a couple of days of weightlessness was had devastating effects on physiological function. Hmm. Uh, there's a famous study done in Dallas in the 1960s at, at Southwestern uh, Medical School where they put young, healthy men to, at bed rest for three weeks to mimic uh, longer space flight, which would have been a long time then. And they showed that the loss of physiological function with three weeks of bed rest was equal to about 30 years of aging. Oh, my years God. Really? Yeah, exactly. And and so that, that's wild, isn't it? But so that's one of the things we really learned a lot about is the need to mobilize people earlier for a whole collection of reasons. Hmm. And and that's been one of the biggest changes, again, I've seen. In the wow. 1970s, people used to have uh, two weeks of bed rest after a heart attack. Now we get people up moving right away. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. Broad, early mobilization is just a broad-based principle that is occurring in medicine. Now, does it occur? Is it right for every single form of operation in every single case? No. Right. Is it a general principle that, that the folks in uh, anesthesia, surgery, critical care, and especially nursing are moving towards? Yes. Okay. Any other uh, tweaks or things you see that are recent or that are suggested or coming that would help people recover from various surgeries? No, I think I think in the surgical world, we're kind of a lot where we are in the human performance world, where where there are a whole lot of marginal gains that if you look at each little one, it doesn't make that big a difference. Hmm. But but a skilled surgical team and a skilled perioperative team in an outstanding hospital can do just a little bit better on a whole bunch of things, and it can have a huge amplifying effect on outcomes. And I think that's really, you know, we think about the future, we think about the future human performance, teamwork, you know, whether it's a sports team, a, a, a military team, a medical team. Uh, I think this idea of, of marginal gains and uh, technology making people better as opposed to replacing people is going to really be a major theme of what we're, we're talking about. Yeah, all right. Well, if, if you don't mind, can we shift to athletic performance? Because I saw that, uh, you know, that, that's a big area of interest. So what have you, what are you studying in regards to that? And what have you figured out that's interesting or new? Well, you know, there, that's a broad topic. But I think the thing we've been studying most recently is how humans respond to hypoxia and how that's influenced by certain features of the red blood cells. But I think the larger, larger issue for me is to try to understand how key features associated with human performance fit together. When we think about endurance performance, Richard, there are three key factors, something called maximal oxygen uptake, which is how much air you, or oxygen you can get from the air and deliver to your exercising muscles. Mm-hmm. It would be analogous to how big is your engine. Uh, the next thing is, is what fraction of your maximum can you work at? So people in the marathon that are highly trained can work at about 80% of their maximum for hours. And then finally, what sort of efficiency can you generate? And then how do those three factors interact and what can you do to make them better and improve performance? So that's really kind of a long-term interest uh, of mine and it's been really my interest uh, since the 1980s. Well, all right, so I understand that part, improving performance, but what about the physiology of what happens to us when we undergo exertion itself? Is there new knowledge that's come there? We haven't seen before. Well, I think the new knowledge is, 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 is what's really striking is, you know, people can increase their energy consumption 10 or even 20-fold for prolonged periods of time. So you think about turning the furnace up 10 or 20-fold, huh. but yet your body temperature only goes up a degree or two. 
Mm. You think about how much harder you breathe when you're exercising, but the, the CO2 and oxygen levels and pH in your blood doesn't change much. So what's really interesting is, is this uh, incredible power of these various regulatory systems to do what's called maintain homeostasis, so a relatively constant internal environment, even when, even when metabolism has increased 10 to 20-fold. So I think we're learning more all the time about the, the different mechanisms which contribute to homeostasis. And one of the most amazing things about it is how, how redundant they are. So there are five or six things that make your skeletal muscle blood flow go up when you exercise. That means if one of those systems is, is, is uh, blocked or, or suboptimal, your blood flow still goes up. There are several different ways you can dissipate heat. Again, one is deficient, the others can take over. There are several different ways uh, your breathing can go for several different mechanisms that drive the increase in breathing. So all of those things point to a, a key principle in biology, which is one of redundant control and, and, and really an overbuilt system. So I think that's what we're learning or continuing to learn about exercise in general and biology even more generally. Well, I would think, I mean, thinking about what you just said, you know, we can uh, turn up our engine 10 to 20x yet keep the same pH, the same body temperature, et cetera. It would be very dangerous and foolish for one system to do that and not have redundancy. And nature, to me, seems exactly. incredibly that's, smart. That's, so. that's yeah, so and and that and and what's really really impressive is just how powerful these these redundant systems are, and about how how well you you can you know adapt. And in addition to that, you know we have behavioral and other strategies to keep ourselves cool, keep ourselves fueled, and so forth. So it's really an impressive an impressive collection of systems that that allow us to to move and and, and move for prolonged periods of time. The other really impressive thing about it is that while you have these short-term adaptations, your breathing goes up, so on and so forth, you have longer-term adaptations. You know, if you train, your heart gets bigger, your cardiac output goes up. We already talked about uh, blood flow to your muscles increasing, your skin blood flow and sweat rate changes so you can um, keep yourself cooler. A whole number of things happen, all of it designed to minimize the threat to homeostasis when you're, in fact, exercising. So, so uh, again, okay. uh, an incredible collection of, of systems that really is are perfectly designed for the task at hand. So what have you seen? Uh, what What is the control mechanism yeah. when you exercise to keep all these factors in so check? That's what's really cool about it. There's control at the cellular level. There's control at the organ level. And then there's control really at the level of the central nervous system. So if you think about blood flow, the, the skeletal muscle releases substances which cause dilation near where the muscles are contracting. So there's an increased demand as a result of contractions. Substances re released by the muscle cause local vasodilation. Now, what else happens at the same time? You start to exercise, your heart rate goes up, the pumping function of your heart increases. So it would be one thing just to, to, to uh, have increased blood flow to your contracting muscles, but if you didn't increase the function of the pumping system, it would all it would all go to the muscle, and there wouldn't be anything left for your brain and your heart. So you've got mechanisms that are local in your muscle. The same is true with your heart. You can increase your heart rate through a variety of nervous mechanisms that uh, increase the secretion of norepinephrine and, and catecholamine-like drugs to make your heart rate go faster. But the amount of blood pumped with each stroke also is dependent on some very local factors and how much the heart is stretched. 
throughout all of this, and you know, uh, Richard, how they, you, they tell people yeah. sometimes to rub on their neck if they have weird heartbeats and things like that. There are things no, in your carotid ar- arteries uh, called uh, the baroreceptors, which sense um, mechanical stretch, which is related to blood pressure. So those things permit blood pressure to remain normal while there's a huge demand for blood flow and a big increase in cardiac output. So it all sorts of works together. So there's control at the local level, control at kind of the organ system level, and then there's integrated control via sensory systems and the autonomic nervous system, which are typically integrated in the in the brain stem. Now, it even gets better than that. Okay. Remember, we talked about metabolism, and, and, and it could go up 10 or 20-fold, and your temperature doesn't change much, and your pH doesn't change much. Well, there's a couple of things you can do. You can wait for all of this feedback to occur, but it's a little bit late. There's something called central command. So as soon as people even think about starting to exercise, their heart rate, breathing, and blood pressure start to change as a result of a signal being sent from the same areas of the brain that cause you to contract your skeletal muscles that's a parallel signal is also sent to your brainstem to drive your breathing and circulation called central command. Well, this, this is actually what I wanted to ask you. I wanted to ask you about this. <laughs> I've heard that um, athletes can be trained. I know the athleticism itself can, you know, lower blood pressure, um, lower heart rate, et cetera. But I've also heard that athletes are able to control their heart rate somewhat and control their blood pressure somewhat. What, you know, by thinking, by meditating, by imagining. And I know athletes also imagine themselves that's, performing. That's, that's you know, those sorts of phenomena are pretty well studied. And certainly people through mental imagery can do all sorts of anything, things. And people can learn to control their blood pressure and heart rate and some other factors to some extent. But I think one of the things that the athlete learns to do, and, and you see it with the great Elliot Kipchoge, the very fast Kenyan who's run uh, just over two hours for the marathon, is, is you see these individuals who are able to put forth great effort and relax at the same time. Great paradox. Uh, you saw it in the 2016 Olympics with Michael Phelps when, when Phelps just absolutely nailed a turn, which uh, really contributed to the U.S. victory in the 4 by 100 uh, freestyle relay. Phelps comes in a little bit behind, nails this turn, the perfect form under under immense physiological stress and comes out ahead at the end of the turn. So one of the things that the athlete learns to do is is what's been described as relax and win. And so this is 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 maximum effort and maximum relaxation at the same time. It, it's just super impressive to see. Hmm. And that's that's trainable and 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 people can learn to do it. <laughs> but but it, it's challenging. And and people have described it at least in endurance sports as an ability to manage your suffering. So the discomfort associated with heavy exercise to these people does not evoke fear, does not evoke anxiety. They really use it almost like a dashboard or, or a, um, a tachometer or some sort of gauge to, to figure out how they do it, and they sort of read their discomfort and manage their suffering. Well, uh, so what, what's so fascinating to you about this process, athletic performance, is it that the body can still keep itself regulated even under tremendous stress, or are there other aspects of it that, that really jump out that you think, wow, I've got to learn more about this? Well, I, I think what really struck me when I first got interested in this is that, you know, the, the body is so overbuilt, we can typically meet the challenges of rest pretty easily. And I certainly see that in my clinical job. You know, there are people with, with 
bad lung disease, uh, bad heart failure, bad kidney disease, who are actually relatively uh, in the normal physiological range. So it's only when you impose a, a stress on the system that you really understand how it performs. So it's a little bit like taking a car out for a test drive or a plane out for a test drive. And then you see, you know, the, the beauty of this sort of physiological regulation and integration. So I think that is my primary interest from a, from a, a scientific perspective. But then I'm also quite interested at in the intersection of the physiology and the psychology as it pertains to this uh, sort of elite performance and how people get better. And, and whether they're elites or not, how, how people uh, can uh, learn to get closer to their personal limit. Yeah, I can tell you, a, you know, a short experiment I've done on myself. So, you know, I've been recently wearing a continuous glucose monitor and, you know, yep. testing how various foods affect me. But one thing I noticed that's a huge help is if my glucose was high, you know, I can get in the treadmill or go for a walk or, you know, do some kind of physical activity for about 15 minutes and it dramatically brings down the glucose very, very quickly. And I had figured that it's because the, uh, you know, the skeletal muscle and the muscle in general is a big sink right. for glucose. So that's what would bring it down so quickly. Any, any thoughts on that phenomenon? Well, and, and that's really been one of the main findings of the last 50 years is that, that, you know, people think about, um, you know, your glucose goes up, you secrete insulin, the glucose is stored. But one of the main findings of the last 50 years is that skeletal muscle can take up glucose in the absence of insulin or its ability to take up glucose when insulin is present is augmented. So that's exactly what you're seeing. And this really explains why uh, physical activity and exercise have such powerful anti-diabetic effects and are really first-line therapy to prevent diabetes, to, to treat you know, pre-diabetes, and even uh, have great utility in people with full-blown uh, diabetes, especially more type 2 diabetes than, than type 1 diabetes, which is so-called juvenile onset diabetes, although that's maybe not the word people use anymore. Yeah, unfortunately. What you're seeing is exactly what the basic scientists, the clinical investigators, and the population scientists have observed over the last 50 years, powerful effects of muscle contraction on glucose. Hmm. Okay. Um, so and Actually, one of the world's leading experts of this is over at the University of Texas, Austin, a man named Eddie Coyle. Hmm. He's an exercise physiologist there. Okay. Well, perhaps another time, I'll, you know, maybe I'll connect with him through you or through other means, but that's great. Yeah. So, all right. So, what, um, what other areas are you looking at that, uh, again, are piquing your interest that you know, you're finding fascination in the details in? One of the things that we've, we've really uh, been doing the last 10 years is looking at sex differences in blood pressure. So, you know, it's known that young women have lower blood pressure than young men, and it's also known that blood pressure drifts up in men over time, whereas women are really pretty protected against high blood pressure until menopause when their blood pressure starts to spike a little bit. And, and so blood pressure in women is more like a hockey stick with a steep rise in menopause. And by age 70, more uh, women have high blood pressure than men. So we've worked on this and, and shown that the nerves that cause the blood vessels to constrict uh, are really work a lot better in men than they do when they're young than they do in young women. And what happens is, is that over time, the women catch up with men, and by menopause and postmenopause, these nerves become much more effective in clamping down on uh, blood vessels and causing blood pressure increase in women compared to men. So that's been a kind of a, a really interesting finding. 
that has some implications about how people think about blood pressure regulation with aging and even how you might treat men and women differently. So that, that, that's really wild. When I first started getting into this, um, uh, you know, I thought there'd be some differences, but it turned out the differences are pretty dramatic. And I think this is also a pretty interesting um, testament for diversity in science in the sense that we've been studying these issues and we've been studying both men and women, but uh, for some reason in the 2000s, the, my postdoctoral fellows in my lab, a number of super talented women joined the lab and they started to uh, drill down on the data and look at sex differences and, and made some of these observations. So it was, it was terrific. So can you go more into the mechanisms of how high blood pressure occurs and how the body regulates blood right. pressure or loses its regular, regulatory ability of it? So normally what happens is there's two, there's two ways the body regulates blood pressure. There are short-term and long-term ways blood pressure is regulated. I mentioned earlier that there are stretch receptors in the aorta and the carotid arteries, which sense uh, each, each pulse of blood pressure by descending, and if the blood pressure is real high, they uh, evoke reflex mechanisms to lower blood pressure, a reduction in heart rate in vasodilation, for example. The blood pressure is too low, they turn those off and heart rate goes up and, and the blood vessels uh, clamp, clamp down. So it's a classic negative feedback mechanism. Now, the other thing that happens is that the kidney has a longer term responsibility for blood pressure. If blood pressure is low, you retain fluid. If blood pressure is high, you, you get you get rid of fluid. So as people get older, it, at least in rich Western countries where they're physically inactive, tend to gain weight and have high sodium diets, both of those mechanisms stop working as well. So people's baroreceptors start defending or the set point becomes a little bit higher. So it'd be like turning the thermostat up. So people start to regulate their blood pressure about a little, around a little bit higher level. And the kidney also reinforces that through changes in blood volume and a secretion of hormones like angiotensin. And so that happens over time. And what we've shown in, in uh, uh, you know, older, 60, say 60-year-old uh, women versus men is that the nerves that cause vasoconstriction are particularly active in those women and contributing to that. So that's, so, so if you think about it, what happens and how do you prevent blood pressure? Well, Diets that are generally a little bit lower in salt have uh, a positive effect. Physical activity is helpful because it keeps the blood vessels relaxed and also helps keep the baroreceptors working. So all of these things kind of work together to, to, to help maintain a normal blood pressure. Hmm. Richard, and one of the really interesting things is that if you look at people living in, in more elementary, non-mechanized cultures, uh, the age-related increases in blood pressure typically either aren't seen or are much, much uh, less steep than they are in, in Western uh, well-off societies. For, so blood for, pressure, uh, the you, rise in blood pressure with aging is not obligatory in all cultures. Yeah, maybe it's because the uh, the baroreceptors and other regulatory mechanisms get used so much that they burn out or become resistant to changes, and maybe that's why the separate changes. They, they call it reset. They become reset. Exactly. And there's a fascinating study uh, of the Kuna people who are live on an island off the coast of Panama, and, and the Kuna who live on this island have no age-associated rise in blood pressure. Kuna living in Panama City, living in, in Kuna communities, enclaves have some increase in blood pressure with age, and Kuna living um, outside of a communal Kuna uh, community in Panama City have much bigger increases in blood pressure. So it's a complex uh, 
thing between culture, social stress, uh, and, and, and so forth. Well, you know, this may be an ignorant question, but why does uh, sodium in the diet contribute to high blood pressure? Well, you know, and that's a little bit controversial in the sense, uh, for a variety of reasons. Certainly sodium can, and there's good epidemiological evidence that does, and if you feed people a high-sodium or low-sodium diet, you certainly change their blood pressure. But certainly sodium is associated uh, with, with volume retention and water retention, and that's one of the determinants of blood pressure. Also, um, um, the way your kidneys handle sodium uh, is, is associated with a very complex regulatory mechanism that includes the secretion of various uh, compounds that cause vasoconstriction. So it's a, it's a couple of things that, that sort of work together. Oh, so the more sodium in the body, the more the body thinks maybe in order to keep homeostasis, we need to retain more water? To balance it out. Yeah, that would be a very that would be a kind of a very uh, simple. Uh, that's the Reader's Digest explanation. <laughs> not everybody who eats high sodium diets going to get blood pressure. Not everybody who reduces their sodium consumption is going to lower their blood pressure. But if you look on average inside of a large population, yeah. there is a relationship between dietary sodium and age-associated increases in blood pressure. Well, it seems like when people have high blood pressure, you know, the docs will put them on blood pressure medication, which appears to have a lot of side effects, or they'll say, you know, in combination, oh, you have to have a low-sodium diet, but do you feel like they're addressing the root cause of the high blood pressure, and are there other ways that people may be able to influence their blood pressure positively than just drugs and low-sodium? When people are able able to, many people, when they lose weight – and become more physically active and do things to modulate their social stress can have dramatic changes in their blood pressure. Now, not everybody can do that. It's very challenging right. and and uh, difficult in modern society. So those individuals need to to you know take their medicines because there is a very clear relationship between increases in blood pressure and all cause mortality. And in fact, a, a, a recent um, study, I believe it's called the uh, I believe it was a Sprint trial shows that even lower blood pressure than people thought is probably reasonable to shoot for. And they showed some evidence that this lower blood pressure in people in their 60s and 70s was protective against the occurrence of myocognitive impairment, which is a precursor to Alzheimer's disease. So high blood pressure is bad for your brain. Yeah, why Why is uh, high blood pressure appear to be correlated with all kinds of problems, you know, stroke, uh, you yeah. know, positive Alzheimer's, well, why? Well, I, I think... You know, stroke is, is pretty straightforward. So high blood pressure is generically associated with vascular disease. There are two types of strokes. One is when the blood vessels break and you have a bleed in your brain. And so pressure is higher, those blood vessels are more likely to break. Two is when, a, you know, a, a there's a clot uh, that, that, that breaks off and, and clots off part of your brain. Again, those are more likely to happen in blood vessels that have been injured repeatedly by high levels of blood pressure. Then there are some other issues just about the mechanical nature of of blood flow and how the elasticity of the blood vessels change and make it harder for blood flow to get to to different parts of the brain. And if you look at at things like um, Alzheimer's disease and and its precursor myocognitive impairment, many of the risk factors for that are, in fact, vascular, cholesterol, diabetes, high blood pressure, smoking, inactivity. So if people follow um, lifestyle advice that's good for their heart, it's also good for their brain. Okay. And, uh, blood pressure medications, uh, what insights do you have into those? Like, what's their mechanism of action and 
what are the side effects? Well, and, that's you know. been one of the really great, great triumphs of modern medicine since World War II, is as people began to understand sort of the wiring diagram of blood pressure, we have drugs that, that diuretics, which, which re, reduce uh, uh, the volume expansion and cause the body to secrete sodium. We have drugs that keep the heart rate down, beta blockers. We have multiple drugs which cause the blood vessels themselves to relax. We have drugs that counteract the effects of these kidney hormones. So there are five or six or seven classes of drugs out there that can lower blood pressure. Now, all of them have side effects, but frequently in low doses, they're, they're quite effective uh, if taken. Now, one of the big problems with almost any of these medicines is that people don't take their medicines. And if we could get people to adhere to their drugs a little bit better, uh, we could even make more progress than we are. Well, what's the mechanism... What's the mechanism by which blood pressure lowering drugs work? Is it different mechanisms for different drugs? And- different mechanisms for different drugs. So you can either make cardiac output lower, you can make vascular resistance lower, and, and because blood pressure is cardiac output times vascular resistance. Mm. And if you look at cardiac output and vascular resistance, you can work your way back several ways. You can have a direct vasodilator, make the vascular resistance lower. You can turn some of the substances or other subsystems off, which cause vasoconstriction. That's another way to do it. You can uh, do several things to reduce the cardiac output. So all of that uh, uh, can work alone or in combination to lower blood pressure. Well, why not do a blood pressure cocktail where you have much lower dosages of any one particular type of blood pressure-lowering medication and use that? Well, you're very interesting you mention that. There's been an effort uh, in a number of countries, especially developing countries, to use what's called a polypill, where you use tiny doses of three or four of these drugs mm. in doses that typically don't cause side effects, and it's been very, very effective. Uh, and there's been a couple trials also done in Canada. So one of the big things that's uh, coming around is what's called the polypill, mm-hmm. and the idea is to use low doses of multiple drugs to, uh, in this case, treat, treat in this case treat hypertension. Other people have proposed putting a low dose statin, low dose a couple blood pressure pills, and a low dose anti-diabetic medication for generic uh, middle-aged uh, inactive people. And there's good evidence, or at least beginning to be good evidence, that this is really the way to go, that you get excellent blood pressure control, and you can do it really with one pill per day. Uh, There are some barriers to that. Many of these drugs are off patent and um, so on and so forth. And and so uh, we've heard a lot about pharma recently, and uh, there just doesn't seem to be a big stimulus for for, um, traditional pharma companies to develop these sorts of polypills. Well, could they designate a polypill with a proprietary mixture as a new pill or a new quote-unquote drug and therefore get you know, the patent I, I protection? Be, uh, practicing patent law with, and regulatory law without a, without a licensure, if I commented on that. Uh, and so I don't really know. Yeah, just a thought occurred to me, but I'm, I'm just wondering, you know. Uh, yeah, I know. You, you, well, I've thought about it, too, but, I, but, but, but I, I don't have enough information to know why more people haven't done it. And there's a few combination drugs that are out there, but I, I'm quite interested in why this hasn't become a, a bigger deal. Where it has become a big deal, uh, what, there was a recent study published in the last year, I believe, in JAMA, Journal of American Medical Association, of terrific results in people with high blood pressure in Sri Lanka. Hmm. And blood pressure is very generalizable, so if it works in Sri Lanka... It, you know, it should also work in Austin, Texas. <laughs> True. Okay. Um, so what, you know, we've covered a lot of topics and all that. You know, we're getting close to 
the end of our time, but what, what are you specifically working on right now? You know, what's going to come from you in the next six months or a year? What are you like heavily researching or investigating? We're working on some unusual patients that have uh, different forms of hemoglobin than normal human hemoglobin. They're rare patients. They have hemoglobin that, that, that binds oxygen more tightly. And these people have been called human llamas. And so what we're trying to understand is if, in fact, these people perform better during hypoxia than people with normal hemoglobin. And uh, we're quite interested in this because uh, there's some standard teaching about whether it's better at altitude or during hypoxia to have uh, what's called left-shifted or, or hemoglobin that more tightly binds to oxygen or right-shifted hemoglobin that gives up the oxygen. And we're using these rare human experiments of nature uh, that come in a couple of families that we have access to at the Mayo Clinic to try to understand that. So that's one thing we're doing. We're also doing some interesting work uh, for the United States uh, Department of Defense trying to help uh, uh, them develop early warning systems and monitors that will detect early stage hemorrhage that will help uh, inform how soldiers on the battlefield or trauma victims should be resuscitated and evacuated. So those would be a couple of things that we're working on now and, and that we're really excited about in, in my lab. Why, when you say hypoxia, what does that look like? What Do people get into that state naturally if they're panting during exercise, or what, what causes hypoxia? When we say hypoxia, the, 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 we think about going up in the mountains would be the altitude would be the normal way to think about it. Okay. Now, people can become hypoxic with lung injury and other things, but the way we simulate it in the lab is give them 125 13 14 15% oxygen. Fifteen oh. percent oxygen is about like ten thousand feet. So that'd be like, you know, being at the top of one of the ski lifts in Colorado, and oh. and that's a level where typically you have a pretty good reduction in human performance, and we're able to to test some of these ideas. Well, what about people that have sleep apnea? I mean, unfortunately, they're in a horribly hypoxic in condition. Hypoxic people with things like idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis and so forth that are also hypoxic. Now, sleep apnea is treatable other ways, but people with, say, lung disease or, or certain cardiovascular diseases may, may be, um, or people with lung injury, may, may be uh, other people to think about how, how those people uh, respond to hypoxia and how you might, in a therapeutic way, be able to tweak their hemoglobin right or left shifted in an effort to improve their oxygenation. So you'd want to, you know, have them have extra hemoglobin. So even if they're in a hypoxic situation, they can still suck enough oxygen from the air to be okay. Extra hemoglobin or less shifted hemoglobin. But on the other hand, they then have to be able to take that oxygen and deliver it when they're down at the tissue. So if it's sticking to the hemoglobin too tightly and they can't get it off at the level of the tissue, you might be ahead at the lung, but, be, you know, behind at the tissue. So we're trying to understand how this operates through what's called the entire oxygen transport cascade. Okay. I'm sure there's, there's a lot of regulation and biofeedback and, uh, you know, things to learn in there. Exactly. And, you know, we, we, uh, it, it's a real puzzle for us. Well, you know, what would be interesting is as someone exercises, and especially as an athlete exercises, I'm sure they have to uh, be able to use oxygen a lot more efficiently so they don't max out and, you know, be unable to perform. So maybe by observing someone exercise, uh, mechanisms turn on that make this process a lot more efficient. All right. And one of the things that's been most interesting, you know, just as an aside, is sometimes we put catheters in people's femoral veins. That's the big vein that drains the leg. Mm. And we have them do all that exercise on the bike. When you do this in an athlete, they, they really uh, 
take about 95% of the oxygen in the blood going to their legs they extract. And when you think that not all of it's going to muscle, some is going to skin and fat, it's really incredible. So you see this venous blood that isn't just sort of bluish. It's a deep, dark purple. looks like a fine red wine. Hmm. And, okay. and it, it's, it's really one of the most impressive things you can observe during a study. Yeah, interesting. Well, um, I probably have like 10,000 more things to ask you, but uh, I think we're... <laughs> well, I can we're come a, back, Richard. Yeah, no, that'd be great. So, yeah, but for now, we're out of time. So for listeners that are interested in one of the many topics we talked about, how do they find out more and, you know, seek you out or your lab and uh, see the work that you're doing? Uh, you know, you, you Google Google Michael Joyner Mayo Clinic and it will come up. You can also look on um, uh, uh, Google Scholar. You'll find quite a bit of things. I, a couple of years ago, I did some writing on related topics for Sports Illustrated, <laughs> which has a bit more of a lay flavor to some of these things with uh, links to important articles or, or other articles. So I think those are, are places to go, and and I get interviewed on on you know this is a, a podcast. Yeah, I did, I just did something for Austrian Public Radio this morning, and um, uh, so forth and so on. So so I think I've I've been interviewed a number of times by different uh, folks on podcasts, and I'm at Dr. M J Joiner on Twitter, where I've uh, certainly had a lot of fun and, and participated in both medical Twitter and kind of sports Twitter. Excellent. Okay. Well, Michael, thanks for coming and uh, for all your knowledge. It's been a really great call. Yeah, Richard, been terrific talking. Look forward to chatting again someday. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you.